Would you pray with me? It's a, uh, it's a wondrous night, God, that we celebrate when you became one of us. Lord, surely our minds cannot comprehend how the eternal can become the finite, and yet it has happened, and we are grateful, God. We love you, and may your spirit dwell richly among us tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, good evening, everybody. I want to take the opportunity to say thanks for coming. And um, my name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here at Table Church. I'm just going to make myself a little more room. And uh, I just want to remind you of a couple things you've already heard tonight. First of all, if you're a guest with us here today, thank you so much for coming. It's a real honor to have you. We have a gift for you out in the lobby. Be sure to grab it before you go at the Welcome Center. Uh, Pastor Megan or I will be there after service. We would love to meet you. Also, uh, Megan mentioned that we're going to give away all of our offering tonight. So uh, it's all going to go to Edmonds Elementary School. And if you're new to Table Church, you might not know, we have a really wonderful partnership with that school. We actually, our office ministry center building is right across the street from it. And we have a, a tutoring program that we run for second and third graders. Uh, and they all go to Edmonds. And um, we just really love blessing the socks off of, uh, off of Edmonds. We love the staff there. We think the teachers and the administrators there are just amazing. They've been really good to us as well, and so we want to bless them. They don't know it's coming, so don't tell them. Uh, but, so you, you, you can write a check tonight, and in the memo line, you can put Edmonds. If you want to give online, uh, you'll have an option of where, you can, of where the money's going. Just choose Operation Edmonds, and we'll give you to the end of the year to do that. So if, you don't, if you're not ready to do it tonight, no problem. We get, you got to the end of the year, and we look forward to blessing them with a big old check after the first of the year. If you have your Bible with you tonight, would you join me in uh, the book of John? We're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. And I'll be reading from the NIV translation tonight, but you can read from anyone that you've got here. Here's what it says, starting in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and, through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. We have a tradition at my house. I wonder if anyone else has this at their house too. Every Friday night at the Wiseman house is pizza and movie night. Does anyone else do pizza and movie night on Friday nights? Anyone? Y'all should start doing it. It's the, okay, we got somebody down here. Y'all should start doing it, all right? Now, obviously, tonight, we might have to fudge on the rule a little bit. We might not be doing pizza and movie night tonight, but it's almost as sure as, as stone. Like, we're going to have pizza, and we're going to watch a movie every single Friday night, except for tonight. You, we, don't, we don't have to debate it. It's not like we pick the kids up from school on Fridays, like, oh, all right, what should we do tonight? Everybody knows that Friday night is pizza and movie night. It's what you would call a given. It's just a given. A given is something that we all assume to be the case. And as long as we all assume that it's the case, there's never a conflict. We don't have to debate it. Now, 
Well, pizza and movie night is a given in my, in my house. Uh, the particular movie that we're going to watch is not a given. That's very much open for debate, and often opinions are shared passionately about which movie we're going to watch. Now, I bet you have some givens in your home as well, things that you don't have to discuss every day, like what drawer you keep the toothpaste in and that kind of thing. Every day, there are countless things that we don't have to decide. It's just assume that this is the way it is. This is the way it goes. There's no debate. They're givens. We have givens in our culture as well, as a, as a broader culture. Certain things everybody agrees on and no one questions. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Christian or an atheist, all of us agree on particular things. And I want to talk about one of those givens that we have in our culture tonight that, that people rarely, if ever, really seem to question. That given is universal human dignity. Universal human dignity. I bet everybody in this room believes in universal human dignity. Just about everybody you know probably would say that they believe in universal human dignity. They don't think, we don't think that, you know, somebody who's more talented than someone else or somebody who has more power or money than someone else is intrinsically more valuable than somebody who has less. We would reject that out of hand, wouldn't we? We think that all people are sacred. All people, all human lives are just as worthy as another one. Now, we do debate how to express universal human dignity. Just like we debate how to express movie night. Are we going to watch Frozen or Cars? Uh, but just as we don't debate movie night itself, we don't debate universal human dignity as a whole, as a concept, right? At least not in our culture to any huge extent. Now, one side might think the other side doesn't believe in it, but I bet you the other side thinks the other side doesn't believe it. We often disagree about ways to realize that ideal, but few people would say, you know what? No, I think some people are just intrinsically better than others. Few people would admit that out loud, and if they did, they'd probably get ridiculed. They'd probably get canceled on Twitter. Like, people wouldn't like them, right? That goes against the things that we believe. I'll bet you everybody here believes in universal human dignity. But here's what's important for us to understand tonight. There was a time when that was not assumed to be true. In fact, for much of human history and many cultures and places, particularly in the time of Jesus, people did not think that. They thought something quite different. They had a different given, if you will. See, they believed in something else. They believed in what we might call the dignity of the elite and the inferiority of the lower class. That was the given in that time. As hard as it is for us to believe that, that's actually what people thought. It's actually how they operated. But somewhere along the line, all of that changed. Sometime in history, a new given entered our consciousness and updated the old way of thinking. And I happen to think that it happened around 2,000 years ago when, as the Gospel of John says, the Word became flesh. By the way, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Scads of scholars will tell you that something happened with the Jesus movement that changed our moral structure the very fundamental nature of it has shifted somehow. We think different because of what happened 2,000 years ago. And I want us to grapple with how earth-shaking that truth is tonight, that the Word became flesh. 
You see, you and I have heard the Christmas story so many times that it's hard to be impressed by it, it much anymore. In fact, last few years, we've, all of us here have, uh, we've gotten a little update on our um, vaccine and virus science. We've all become experts, right? And uh, so we've been reminded that prolonged exposure to something sometimes means you build immunity to it. Now, I understand it's different for the virus, right? It doesn't matter. Or it's different for every kind of virus. But, but sometimes when you have prolonged exposure to something, you build something of an immunity to it. Something may affect you deeply when you first encounter it, but with exposure over time, you grow inoculated to it. In fact, some vaccines even operate that way. They kind of put like a version of the virus in you, and that's what teaches your body, you know, to fight the virus. Sometimes I think we grow inoculated to the significance of Christmas. We've been exposed to it so much, maybe it doesn't affect us quite like it did or quite like it should. We forget the fact that it changes everything. Now, in our passage today, John uses a funny phrase for referring to Jesus. He calls him the Word. <laughs> the Word became flesh, he says. In ancient Stoic philosophy, which is the widespread belief system in the time of Jesus, uh, the Word was the term that was used to describe this mysterious force that kind of held the universe together and gave it coherence, all right? The word, or in Greek, the logos, was this mysterious force. And if you're thinking of Star Wars right now, that's actually not really a bad comparison. Like, it was this force that just kind of was there and gave coherence and held everything together, but it was impersonal. The, the word did not speak to you. The word did not rescue you. The word did not care about you. And now think about this. When your view of ultimate reality is that it's kind of this blind, impersonal force then it isn't hard to see why the ancients didn't believe in universal human dignity. Because after all, this force, this word, this logos, that made some people rich and powerful and some people poor and weak, that, that's apparently just the way it's supposed to be then. The elites in society have dignity. The lower class apparently is inferior but what happens when that's your worldview? What happens when the word actually becomes part of the lower class? How does that mess up your worldview? What happens when the word takes on flesh and is born in a manger and grows up among the peasants and hangs out with sinners and touches lepers and sticks up for prostitutes and eats dinner with tax collectors? What happens then? I'll tell you what happens. It turns everything upside down. Now, those who were lower are just as important as those who are higher. Why? Because the word became one of them. That's what John is telling us. This changes everything. The way that we think, the way we structure as a society has all changed because the word became flesh. It changed our given. Luke Ferry is a philosopher. He's a French philosopher in Paris. He's not a Christian. But listen to what he says. He says, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. He goes on to say that if it wasn't for Christianity, then the philosophy of human rights, it's another kind of given that we have, right? That we have these inalienable rights. 
as human beings. It says that this philosophy of human rights that we all kind of have, this given that we have, uh, would have never established itself. So that means if you, if you prefer democracy over dictatorships, if you think the poor matter just as much as the rich, if you think that you can't put a value on human life, if you think that we have an obligation as a society to the sick and, and, and to the poor, you should know that the reason you feel that way is because the word became flesh. David Bentley Hart says Christianity placed charity at the center of its spiritual life as no pagan cult ever had and raised the care of widows, orphans, the sick, the imprisoned, and the poor to the level of the highest of religious obligations. You see, when the word became flesh, no longer could the haves lord it over the have-nots. God himself became one of those have-nots and infused infinite dignity into us all. My guess is that you are a person who affirms universal human dignity. I see it all over the place. We are a people who are passionate about our ethical sensibilities. But the problem is often that many people who want to affirm the values of universal human dignity want to also deny its very basis. Here's what I want us to hear. The miracle of the incarnation is what gives meaning to our deeply held values. Many people will hear me say that and dismiss it out of the hand. Some, some people might say, oh, I don't, I don't need Jesus to be a good person. I would say, you're right. I mean, you can, you can do good things and, like, you know, live, live, live a good life by most standards without Jesus. Like, sure. But I would also want to point out two problems with saying, I don't need Jesus to be a good person. The problem number one is simply defining good. Good according to who? What happens when someone has a different idea of good than you? How do we know what's actually good? There was an atheist named Richard Dawkins. He once treated, tweeted to a woman. His advice, if she became pregnant with a child that had Down syndrome, his advice was this. Abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have a choice. Naturally, many parents of children with Down syndrome took serious issue at that tweet because to them it appeared that he didn't affirm the dignity of their child's life. For him, human dignity apparently had a limit. So when you're trying to live a good life, we should realize that Richard Dawkins, what he calls good, might be a little different from what Mother Teresa calls good. Who's right? Those are two very different things. So when someone says, I'm a good person, the question to ask is, well, good according to who? And my bet is that what most of us mean by good means that you affirm things like universal human dignity, but once you do that, you should know that your definition of good is indebted to the fact that the word became flesh. The problem with saying, I don't need Jesus to be a good person, is that chances are your definition of good more or less comes from the movement that started 2,000 years ago under the name of Jesus. And that leads to the second problem of saying we don't need God to be good, and that's justifying good. How do you justify good? Not only must, must we define what's good, but we also must have a reason for doing it. We must have a, a reason that compels us to want to do it. That's justification. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he was having a conversation with a non-believer about this very thing. And the non-believer said, I don't need God to have a reason to treat people well. He went on to say this. He said, it's based on the fact that I would want to be treated in this way. Why isn't that compelling to, be, to a reasonable skeptic? Why do I need, to, need more reason or justification than that? It seems common sense. He's saying, look, the reason why I think I should be good to people is because I want people to be good to me. It's just common sense. It's obvious, he says. 
Now, I don't know if they noticed this, but it's, I find it a little ironic that the non-believer, while trying to justify the fact that he can be good without God, actually appeals to the teachings of Jesus to do it. Did you catch it? He said, well, it's based on the fact that I would want to be treated in this way. And you may hear in that what we call the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve. Jesus says it, do to others as you would have them do to you. So ironically, he's trying to lay out his reasons for not needing God to be good, but in order to do it, he appeals to the teachings of Jesus. I think that's a little ironic. But even deeper than that, he says that it's just common sense that, that we should treat people how we want to be treated. That's his reasoning. It's just common sense, he says. But look, that, that's not a rational argument. That's a feeling. That's a sensibility. And it's fine as long as we all hold that same sensibility. It's a given, as long as we all hold that, then it works. But what happens when someone comes along and says that, you know what, I don't affirm that? What reason do you have? What clear, compelling resources do you have to tell me to be good according to your standards? The reason we know universal human dignity is true is because the Word became flesh. That's, what we base, that's the basis of it. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Among us we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look, the glory of God became visible to us in the form of a little baby. He is the one who shows us grace and truth. He is the one who shows us what is good. He is the one who shows us that all humans have infinite worth. This is also why it's not enough to simply say, you know, I, I agree with Jesus' teachings. He was a good moral teacher, but I don't buy all that God stuff. I don't buy all that miraculous stuff. The problem there is that if, if you remove Jesus' divinity from, from, from him, then the fact that he became flesh loses its significance too. He's just another baby. There's no way to ground the, the fact that the Logos, the Word, became one of the lower class. That no longer happened anymore. If he was just another man, then we lose our most powerful basis to affirm universal human dignity. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, those parts of the Bible, the challenging, supernatural parts are central, not peripheral. The heart of the unique message of the Bible is that the transcendent, immortal God came to earth himself and became weak, vulnerable, suffering, and death. If it is true, it is the most astonishing and radical act of self-giving and loving sacrifice that can be imagined. There could be no stronger basis and dynamic motivation for the revolutionary Christian ethical concepts that attract us. In other words, the given that we all assume to be true rests upon the fact that God became one of us. What made the early Christians unique was not that they were really nice to everybody. In fact, back then, remember, they had different givens. They looked at the Christians and the things they were doing. They were like, what in the world are you doing? When the early Christians rescued babies and visited the imprisoned and took care of the sick, they were simply living in a way that logically followed from their view of ultimate reality. God has come, he has taken on our flesh, and he has infused infinite worth into every single one of us. He has shown the infinite value of every human soul. When I was a kid, there was a Kool-Aid commercial and there'd be some kids hanging out in the summer, it'd be really hot, they're like dripping with sweat, and then the Kool-Aid man, the big pitcher of Kool-Aid, would bust through a brick wall and say, oh yeah. <laughs> you remember that one? Look, sometimes our Christmas songs uh, can lead us to think that Christmas is like this quiet, humble little moment, like God kind of sneaked in on us, you know what I'm saying? 
But I actually think the Kool-Aid commercial kind of gets it a little closer to the truth. Like, at Christmas, God busts into our world. Christmas is, a, is an intrusive act where God is forcefully invading our world that is controlled by sin and death. God changes it completely. Christmas is a revolution. It says in John 1, 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the light by which we see. Think about how drastically things change in a room when, someone, when it's dark and someone flips on the light. That changes everything. And I find that many people today accept the morality of Jesus. They agree uh, in universal human dignity, but they deny the light bulb that allows them to see it. So here's my challenge for you and me this Christmas. Let's not deny the source of that light. That thing that's allowing us to see, don't ignore the basis for the values that we all hold. Because when you finally do encounter the real Jesus, he'll be far more than you ever imagined him. Believe me, he's much better than his followers. He's much better than his followers. He is the one who makes sense of the world. He is the one who gives ultimate meaning and purpose to our lives. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so tonight, my prayer is that if you haven't already, that you would step into that light, that you would flip that, allow that light switch to be flipped on in your life, that you would acknowledge the basis for the, the values that you probably already hold. Because the word became flesh, you can know that God takes particular delight in you, that you are valuable, that you are worth it to God to cross the chasm of eternity and become a baby. A baby that was destined for the cross, but would not stay there either, would rise in victory over sin and death, and defeating fear in his wake. Would you pray with me? Lord God, tonight we thank you for the gift of your son, that incomprehensible and incomprehensible truth. Lord, that gets obscured sometimes in the craziness and, I don't know, the busyness of the holidays, but Lord, um, restore to us the joy of our salvation tonight, I pray. And if anyone doesn't have that joy, I pray, Lord, that you would just bust in on them like the Kool-Aid man. Lord, interrupt their lives, I pray. And if that's where you're at tonight, if God is interrupting your life, I invite you to mark that on your connection card, and, and we would love to get a, a hold of you and talk more about it. But Holy Spirit, would you do what only you can do? I don't know how good my sermon is, God, but it's worthless if you don't do anything. And so, Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you make this church a spiritual force for your kingdom and for good in this city, I pray. We love you and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>